Amen. All right. Colossians chapter 1. This is the second in our series of messages on the book of Colossians in the New Testament. And as you're flipping to Colossians chapter 1, let me tell you a couple things. Don prayed for Haiti. And I want to let you know that um, John Battistini, who is a member of this church and works for Hope Givers International, the great ministry founded by Dr. Thomas that's based here out of Columbus, uh, is doing work in Haiti. In fact, uh, John right now is in Peru, and he's doing some work in Peru with the uh, establishing orphanages and the work of Hope Givers there. But uh, these last couple months, in fact, about two months ago, John was in Haiti, and one of the things that he was doing in Haiti is he was scouting out the possibility um, and kind of laying the groundwork for us to be able to go to Haiti this summer to uh, help to build a church and also an orphanage and school. And so uh, we were planning on doing that this uh, June and July and into August. We were going to do two different trips, a construction team and a medical team. Those plans are somewhat in flux now until we can hear back from John. He's in Peru. He'll be returning home from Peru uh, this week in a couple days, and so um, please do be praying for Haiti, and please do give, but it's very easy to just in a week or two when the news cycle changes to sort of change our hearts, and so um, pray that if there is an opening and it is, um, <clears throat> it is appropriate for us to go there this summer, we'll get the word out to you as quickly as possible about those dates and start organizing a team, uh, but so pray for that. Pray for Haiti. Pray for John specifically and his work and Hope Givers' work in Haiti. Hope Givers is one of the organizations, along with Samaritan's Purse and Compassion International and another ministry called Convoy of Hope that we have listed on our website that we highly recommend that you give to. So pray for them. And during our Daniel Fast and in our Daniel Fast guide that we put out last week, we've had a daily prayer guide that we've wanted to emphasize some area of prayer each day. And today... Uh, day six, I believe it is, no, day seven, that we've been, we're praying for the persecuted church worldwide. And so as we pray for Haiti, let's pray also for the church in areas of the world where the gospel is closed and where, in fact, it is against the law. And many Christians that love Jesus are operating underground and at the threat of persecution and even death. So as we open our Bibles to Colossians, uh, I feel a great weight for Haiti and the persecuted church today. So let's pray and ask God to help us as we, as we study today. Lord, thank you for that beautiful song that the worship team played from Romans 8.28, that you are working all things together for the good of those that love you and are called according to your purpose. That line in there struck me that we love to receive prosperity, but shall we not also take suffering. Job says in the first few chapters that that God has blessed him, shall he also not receive it when God turns and allows evil to fall his way. Lord, the great one of the great mysteries, if not the great mystery, is your providence over evil and earthquakes and orphans and despair. God, we know 
that in these moments we need to affirm the truth that Don read in Psalm 46, that you are our refuge and our, tr- and our stronghold, and that we turn to you. And so, God, we pray for the work of the gospel in Haiti. We pray that somehow you would work this tragedy for your good, that you would pour out your blessing through the generosity of the world and through the church and that in a way that we cannot see from this vantage point that you would cause this to bring about a spiritual awakening in Haiti and the entire Caribbean, in fact, the entire world. And God, we pray for the persecuted church as well in the Arabic countries, in China, in places where the preaching of the gospel freely is against the law. As we are gathered here in this charming setting, God, would you lift our eyes and put us in connection in the spirit with our brothers and sisters around the world who do not have the freedom that we have to freely worship. And now, God, as we turn our hearts to Colossians and this huge truth that we have to deal with today about the gospel, I pray that you would saturate our thoughts and our thinking and my words today with the person and the work of Jesus. We do not need tips on how to live a better, more efficient, more prosperous life. God, we need we need to be stunned. We need to see. We need to savor. We need to embrace the all-encompassing, precious treasure of Jesus today. Because he is the image of the invisible God. He is the firstborn over all creation. By him all things were created, whether on heaven or on earth. Whether thrones or dominions or principalities or powers, all things were created through him and for him and by him. And he is before all things and in him all things hold together. And through him you have reconciled all things to yourself, making peace by the blood of his cross. And so, Lord, as we talk about the gospel of Jesus today, as we orient and recalibrate our hearts and our minds as a church, whether we have been Christians for a long time, whether just for a short time, or whether we are not, God, I pray that the arrow of the Holy Spirit would shoot straight and hit our hearts, that you would cause us to see and savor Jesus today. I pray this in his great and precious name. Amen. All right, Colossians chapter 1. We're going to start with verse 3. I had mapped out that our work through Colossians in this spring and early summer would take about 12 or 13 weeks. Last week we got about one-third of the way through the message that I had intended, and so this week we're going to finish up what I intended to do the second part of last week, and I'm glad we didn't do all that because it would have been too much. And on that note, um, I don't know why, I mean, we're not rushing through Colossians. One of two things is going to happen. We are either going to finish Colossians eventually, or Jesus is going to come back. And hopefully most of us won't really have a need for, uh, in fact, my mission is all of us won't have a need to study Colossians anymore because we can ask Paul personally what he was thinking. And so um, we're just going to take our time. 
All right, so let's go. Colossians chapter 1, verse 3. Today, we're going to talk about the simplicity and the truth of the gospel and the truth of that. Whether you have been a Christian for many, many years, whether you've just recently become a Christian, or if you're not a Christian, I'm especially glad that you're here today. This is the truth that really is the only truth that matters, and we're going to recalibrate our hearts on it today. I'm going to ask four questions that we'll work our way through, and then we'll respond in worship to God. Paul writes, we always thank God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, when we pray for you, since we heard of your faith in Christ Jesus and of the love that you have for all of the saints because of the hope laid up for you in heaven. And that's where we ended last week. And remember, the whole point that we were making last week is that Paul saw in these Colossians faith and hope. These are two fruits of the Spirit. These are two evidences of their salvation. And Paul saw them, even though he had never been with them, he had heard of them, the evidence was clear that this church at Colossae were truly Christians because of their faith and love. And remember, Paul did not plant the church at Colossae. He was in Ephesus where this young man named Epaphras was there with Paul in Acts chapter 19. And he received the gospel, received Jesus, and then went back to his hometown of Colossae and planted this church there. And then now is visiting Paul years later in prison in house arrest in Rome and is telling him about some problems in the church at Colossae, kind of this super spiritual Guru that's kind of leading them away from the sufficiency of Christ. And now Paul is writing a letter to this sort of this grandchild church of his, so to speak, telling them that they need to reorient their lives on Christ. But they are Christians. They're truly believers. And it is evident to Paul because he's heard and word has gone around that region of the Colossians faith and love. And then he says that. You have this faith and love, not because you're trying to work out a better 40 or 60 or 70 or 80 years here on this earth. You're not just living for now, but what has released you to loosen your grip from this world is the hope that you have in heaven. And that's the whole point that we made last week, that we're not living for these 80 years, that that in fact being heavenly minded released these people to give themselves away in faith and love. And that's where we were last week. And so now we get to verse 6. Where, or Let's go back to verse 5. Because of the hope laid up for you in heaven, of this you have heard before in the word of truth, the gospel which has come to you as indeed in the whole world, it is bearing fruit and growing as it also does among you since the day you heard it, And understood the grace of God in truth, just as you learned it from Epaphras, our beloved fellow servant. He is a faithful minister of Christ on your behalf and has made known to us your love in the spirit. So there's this chain here that I want you to see is that first Paul sees their faith and love. And he says the reason you have this faith and love is because you have this hope in heaven 
And you have this hope in heaven because you heard the gospel, the grace of God in truth, which you heard and received from Epaphras, our fellow servant. And so there's this, there's this, there's this sequence, there's this chain, this evidence, this because of their hope in heaven, and the fact that they have this hope in heaven is because of the gospel, the good news which they heard. And so I'm going to ask four questions today. And hopefully answer them, and then we'll be done. And let me tell you what these four questions are so you can be thinking about them. The first question that is the most important question in the world is, what exactly is the gospel? What is the gospel? The second question that I'm going to ask and hopefully answer today is, how is it spread? How, is it, how does it go? The third question is how is the gospel received? How is it received? How do, you, how do you become a Christian? And then the fourth question is, how do we know, how do we truly know that we have received the gospel and that we are saved or that we're born again? How do we know this? So what is the gospel? How is it spread? Or how, how is it received? And then how do we know that we have truly received the gospel? Go to Romans chapter, chapter 1. In fact, don't do that. Just listen. I'm going to read a bunch of scripture today. Unless you've got fast thumbs um, and you're a flipper extraordinaire, you may just want to see this on the screen. And all the notes and all the scriptures that I read today will be on the Internet by tomorrow in our notes. What is the gospel? The gospel is, many people think it is, a moral set of laws, commandments, a way to live. But that's not what the gospel is. Yes, the gospel does call us to live for God in a certain way within his parameters. But the gospel is first and foremost, it is news. This word gospel comes from the Greek word evangelion, which means good tidings, good news. And it is First and foremost, a proclamation of what God has done in Christ on the cross. So the gospel is not that God is, 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 is you know, wanting you to live right. The gospel is not that you go to church. The gospel is not merely that you would obey the Ten Commandments. The gospel is not um, some moral guidelines. The gospel is the good news of what God has done in Christ on the cross for all those that would believe and trust in Jesus. Let me read this in Romans chapter 1. And this is an incredibly important verse. Just to give you a little history, I love the history of the church. And Martin Luther, back in the early 1500s, when he was a a Catholic monk and and distressing over the the mistaken teaching of the Catholic Church about how you were justified by works and in this particular situation giving to the building of the Basilica in Rome and there was this guy that was walking around the Roman Empire in this particular instance the German countryside his name was Tetzel he was this German monk and he was collecting funds for the building of the Roman uh, basilica, the Roman church in Rome at St. Peter's Basilica. And he was saying that whenever 
copper in the offering bowl dings or rings a soul from purgatory springs and so he was teaching these people that if you will give that god will somehow have favor on you and maybe your dead relatives in this mistaken notion of purgatory and i don't have time to unpack that but luther began to read romans and realized that we were justified by faith in the gospel and nothing else and he started to beat himself he's in fact he read romans and he said that paul was beating him with his letter and he was he was under just dire straits and so finally he has enough of it he writes a 95 points called his thesis and he nails it to the chapel door at wittenberg in germany and and all heaven broke loose and that's the Protestant beginning of the Protestant Reformation. But it began with Luther reading this verse that I am reading to you today. Romans chapter 1, verse 16. He says, For I am not ashamed of the gospel. This piece of information, this news, I'm not ashamed of this news. And we'll talk about what that news is in just a second. For it, this piece of news, this oxygen that comes out of this word, this statement it listen you got to get this you've got to know this whether you've been a christian all your life which is actually not possible because at some point you have to be born again but whether you've been a christian for a long time the gospel it is the power of god for salvation to everyone who believes to the jew first and also to the greek and so we're setting the stage here paul is saying that this piece of information that we're about to unpack here in a second that it contains in it the power of god for salvation and it saves it saves this piece of news so what is this piece of news romans chapter 3 unpacks it and in romans chapter 3 verse 9 and let me just kind of catch you up to the argument paul is making in romans chapter 1 he's talking about how in fact, he's making this claim, this, this, he's making a case in Romans that all humanity has fallen and separated from God and needs salvation. And he is, he is saying how that happens. And in Romans chapter 1, he's talking about how all humanity, Gentiles, even though they didn't have the law of God or Moses' commandments, just by virtue of the heavens and creation, should have been drawn to a creator and should have known him, and that there's this moral law written on the heart of every person, whether or not they were an Old Testament Jew or wherever they are, there's this moral law that should draw you to God, and that all people, whether Jew or Gentile, have forsaken God and turned away from him. And in Romans chapter 2, he makes the claim that the Jews, even with the law, even the blessed chosen people in the Old Testament of the Jews, turned away from this written law, and all of us are guilty. And he says in Romans chapter 3, verse 9, What then? Are we Jews any better off? No, not at all. For we have all charged at all, both Jews and Greeks, or in other words, Gentiles, are under sin. Verse 10, as it is written. Listen, these are very important words. And these are hard words for proud, church-going, born-in-the-Bible-belt, relatively moralistic people like us to swallow. But they are some of the most important words you'll ever read. Most people grow up not sensing their need for salvation. C.S. Lewis, I've said this many times, he was a very profound Christian thinker, midway through last century, British man, Chronicles of Narnia, that whole deal, mere Christianity. 
he said to the Western mind, he was speaking to British people, but it applies to us as well. He said to the Western sophisticated mind, you have to preach the disease before you can preach the cure. We have to be convinced that we need a Savior before we realize we even need salvation. We have to understand that we're fallen. And this is what this verse unpacks. Listen, none is righteous. No, not one. No one understands. This is us. No one seeks God. All have turned aside. Together they have become worthless. No one does good, not even one. Their throat is an open grave. They use their tongues to deceive. The venom of asps is under their lips. Truthfully, I don't even know what an asp is, but it doesn't sound good. I'll get some emails on that. I'll look it up before you send me the email. So just me Their mouth is full of curses and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood. In their paths are ruin and misery, and the way of peace they have not known. There is no fear of God before their eyes. Now we know that whatever the law says, it speaks to those who are under the law. And he makes the case in Romans 1 and 2 that all of us are under the law of God. So that every mouth may be stopped. In other words, no matter how good you are, Bible Belt kid, no matter how good you think you are, your mouth is stopped before God if you try and stand before him on your own merit. And the whole world may be held accountable to God. For by the works of the law, no human being will be justified in his sight. That's everybody. If you didn't connect with that asps and venom and open grave language, which you should have, by the way, if you didn't identify with that, then certainly you, you need to know that that's talking about all of us. For by the works of law, no human being will be justified in his sight. That means that no matter how good you are, church person, no matter how moralistic you are, none of us can stand before God and be made right. Since, For by the works of the law, no human being will be justified in his, in his sight, since through the law comes the knowledge of sin. And then in verse 21, it turns and it explains what God did in response to this, and this is the gospel. And in fact, in verse 21 of chapter 3, Martin Luther the great reformer said that this is the crux, it's the fulcrum, it's the turning point. It is the most important passage in the Bible. And he says in Romans chapter 3, verse 21 through 26, and this is one of the passages that is the best explanation of the gospel in the entire scriptures. Don't miss this. Don't miss this. Don't wander off. Come on, click in with me now. But now, the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law. In other words, there's this way that God brings salvation apart from the good works that he called the people in the Old Testament to through the law. Although the law and the prophets bear witness to it. And so what he's saying is, is this law, this written law that was the Jewish people's law and the law that's been written on every human heart couldn't bring righteousness, and so God has brought righteousness apart from that law. But oh, by the way, that very law points to this righteousness that God is now bringing, and we'll see here in just a second that that is Jesus. So, so come on. 
Follow what Paul is saying here. He's saying everybody's fallen. The whole world is accountable before God. Every mouth shall be stopped. No one is righteous in himself. The law has clearly stated that whether it's the moral law written on the heart of every human being or whether it is the written law that the people of God in the Old Testament have, it pronounces guilt on everybody. But even as it pronounces guilt, it points towards the one in whom all people can find innocence. And so now he continues to unpack it. Verse 22, the righteousness of God through faith. This is the it that it bears witness to. The righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. For there's no distinction. And he goes back now just to clarify, just in case we missed it in the first previous verses of 9 through 20. He says, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. That's all of us. All of us. Whether we are terrorists that fly planes into buildings or whether we are church kids that grow up in the youth group, all of us, and certainly some sin is worse than others, consequentially, here on this earth, but all sin separates from us from God, ultimately. All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified by His grace, as a gift, through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. Listen to this, verse 25. Whom God put forward as a propitiation by His blood to be received by faith. That word propitiation is incredibly important. It means that humanity has fallen. Okay, we've established that point. All of us, whether we're terrorists or church kids, all of us are fallen. And that that fallenness needs recompense. It needs to be made up. It needs to be appeased for. And God, instead of taking out his justice and his wrath on human rebellion, which he would have been more than just to do, has put forward. This is the language Paul is using. He has offered his own son as a sacrifice. And propitiation is, is a word that we don't use much in English. But it is an incredibly important word that means that Jesus, be, as being a propitiation, absorbed the anger and the justice and the wrath of God against human rebellion on the cross for us and diverted that justice and that wrath and that that supreme holy anger against human rebellion and turned it in to favor and blessing and so jesus on the cross satisfies completely satisfies satisfies cancels absorbs soaks up takes care of, does away with, removes once and for all the penalty of sin for all those that would believe in him. This is spectacular. This is stunning. This is amazing that God did that in Jesus And so Jesus takes wrath on the cross, dies, is buried, and then defeats that death and sin and consequences of it all by rising again several days later. And then ascending to the Father 
and is now at the right hand of God, as Romans tells us later, interceding for his people. And so Christ not only took the sacrifice, he defeated the foe. That's the gospel. That's the good news. That is the proclamation. And now, and he'll unpack it here, only those who receive that, only those who, and we'll talk about how you do that, only those who believe in that are saved. The rest, don't miss this, the rest who do not repent and receive and believe that are still under God's wrath. And someday we'll face it. And Paul continues, for all have sinned, verse 24, and are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation by his blood to be received by faith. This was to show God's righteousness because in his divine forbearance or patience or kindness or goodness, he had passed over former sins. In other words, he didn't come down and smoke Adam and Eve in the garden, although he could have. And he didn't come down and smoke the Israelites in the desert because they murmured after he just broke them out of Egypt, although he could have. How he doesn't come down and smoke us like a cheap cigar every time we rebel against his greatness, even though he could have. But that he poured out his wrath and his justice on Jesus once and for all for those who will believe in him. It was to show his righteousness, verse 26, at the present time, so that he might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. And so let's, let's, let's get this here before we move on. What is the gospel? The gospel is the good news of what God has done to take care of human rebellion and sin on the cross through his death, through his burial, through his resurrection, through his ascension, his sacrifice, wrath-absorbing sacrifice, and his resurrecting victory, victory over it. That is the gospel. It's the gospel. It's a piece of information. And what Jesus did on the cross is what saves us, not human good works. And so now the second question is, how is it spread? Well, it's spread. It's spread by speaking. Paul says in Romans chapter, Romans chapter 10, he says, For everyone who calls upon the name of the Lord will be saved. How then will they call on him in whom they have not believed? And how are they to believe in him in whom they have never heard? And how are they to hear without someone preaching? And how are they to preach unless they are sent? As it is written, how beautiful are the feet of those who preach, who speak, who communicate the good news. And so Paul says, remember in Colossians chapter 1 that we just read, he says this good news, this gospel that you heard from Epaphras, you have to hear it. You have to hear it. Now I understand you may be saying, well, what about a person who doesn't have hearing? Well, it's however you receive information, whether it is through Braille or whatever it is, you are commu- the communication of the information for the vast majority of us, it is the spoken word, you have to hear it. You have to hear the good news of what God did in Christ on the cross. And that very thing, when you receive it and accept it, and we'll talk about that in a second, that saves you. 
So that's why it's so important, friends, that we preach the gospel, that we always come back to that because people don't get saved by church attendance or good works or working in the nursery or giving to Haiti. That's not how you get saved. You get saved by faith and receiving this piece of news. Some of us, this is a very popular saying, and I don't mean to bash it if you got it on a coffee cup or a, a shirt. But have you ever heard that old saying? I think it was most widely attributed to St. Francis of Assisi. It says, preach the gospel at all times and when necessary, use words. I understand the sentiment of that, but that is biblically false. That's like saying, and I heard a preacher say this recently, that's like saying, give me a call on the telephone and when necessary, use digits. (laughs) You can't call somebody unless you have the number, unless you press the number. You can't communicate the gospel through good works. It is a spoken word. It's a piece of information. It's oxygen that comes out of somebody's mouth that says this is what Jesus did for you. Believe. That's what it is. And that's how it spread. That's why we don't talk about silliness here. About seven steps to having a happy lunch break. That's why we talk about Jesus all the time. All the time. We got one, we got one drum, we got one stick, and we hit it as hard as we can, and it's Jesus all the time and what he did on the cross. Because that's what saves. That's what saves, and we're going to talk about what salvation inevitably brings. Certainly there's practical issues that we'll handle, and I think we do that But we talk about the gospel all the time. So that's how it's spread. It's by speaking. Now, how how is it received? It's received by believing, by trusting, by faith. Back to Colossians chapter 1, verse 6. Paul says this. He says, Which this gospel, which has come to you, as indeed in the whole world it is bearing fruit and growing, as it also does among you since the day you heard it, and, and this is a very important word, and understood the grace of God in truth. In other words, it started bearing fruit in you, not just when the words hit your ear and maybe you started attending church, but when you understood it. And that English word that we get understood comes from a Greek word, means to know, but in a different sense of just to know There's several words for knowledge, to know, in the Greek. And this particular one carries with it a connotation, not only just to understand the information, but to embrace it and experience it. And so, how do you receive this good news of the gospel? How does it become effective in your life? And how do you become a Christian? You become a Christian by receiving the news of what we just unpacked which was explained in Romans chapter 3 and in other places, by now not just giving cognitive agreement to, oh yeah, I grew up in a Christian culture and I believe in a God and yeah, Jesus died on the cross for my sins, but now treasuring and embracing this truth and making it the, the pearl, the joy, the driving truth of your life. Does it mean now that you're perfect, perfect and without sin? Of course not. But it means that you're, we are embracing this truth of Jesus. Check this out. Matthew chapter 13, 
verse 44 through 46. This is the way Jesus explains this news. He says, the kingdom of heaven is like a treasure hidden in a field, which a man found and covered up. Then his, in his joy, he goes and sells all that he has and buys that field. Again, the kingdom of heaven is like a merchant in search of fine pearls, who on finding one pearl of great value, went and sold all that he had and bought it. So to believe in Jesus in a sense that we are believing him for salvation is more than just cognitive agreement. Come on, we've got to get this because our world is full of cultural Christians who think they're saved, but they're not. Saving faith is faith that appropriates, that believes, that receives, that embraces Jesus as our treasure in life. And you can grow up in a weak, watered-down church all your life and never get that. You must embrace Him. He must, he must make you new. That's why the language of John, Jesus says, you must be born again. The song that we sung just a moment ago that Paul quoted, 2 Corinthians 5, 21. It says that he made him who knew no sin to be sin for us so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. A couple verses before that, it says that when we are in Christ, old things have passed away. This old man dies and you become a new person in Christ. It's an embracing of this all-consuming truth that Jesus is Lord of all, sacrificially dying for us and rising again in victory over our sin and death. That's not just to be agreed with, friends. That is to be embraced as your only hope. That's how you receive. That's how you receive. And we often do great damage in our culture. When we do things, and I'm, listen, I want to speak carefully here. But when we give people false senses of security by making them think they're Christians just by either coming to church or responding maybe by raising your hand or praying a prayer, look, those can be good things to do at times. But nowhere in the Bible does it say that if you do this little thing, you will be a Christian and then attend church. What it says is that if you will repent and believe, embrace, treasure Jesus, you're a Christian. So that's how it is received. Now to the final question and the hardest question and one that might rattle our cage a little bit, but we need it rattled. How do we know that we have truly received Christ and are saved. Let me go to Mark chapter 4 in the gospel of Mark and the parable of the sower. Hang with me for about 10 minutes. we are done. And then we'll respond to Jesus. My burden is, is that most of us have grown up in a nominal Christian culture where the gospel is assumed. And when the gospel is assumed, the gospel is lost. And so how can we truly know that we are Christians? How can we truly know that we're saved? Jesus offers this parable in the gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke. And in Mark, he says it in Mark chapter 4. 
He offers the parable of the sower, and he says in verse 3, Listen, a sower went out to sow, and as he sowed, some seed fell along the path, and the birds came and devoured it. Other seed fell on rocky ground, where it did not have much soil, and immediately it sprang up, since it had no depth of soil. And when the sun rose, it was scorched, and since it had no root, it withered away. Other seed fell among thorns, and the thorns grew up and choked it out, and yielded no grain. Other seeds, though, in verse 8, fell into good soil and produced grain, growing up and increasing and yielding 30-fold and 60-fold and 100-fold. And so what he's saying is, that, is here is that this farmer, and now listen, just a little word about parables. Parables are just word pictures that Jesus uses to bring out one spiritual truth generally. So when you're thinking about parables and word pictures that Jesus and the Bible writers use, don't try and make too many analogies. Usually there's just one main point that Jesus is trying to make in his parables. So get, don't get too like, well, this means that. But here's the point, is that the seed of the gospel, this news, this proclamation, is, is scattered. And it hits different types of soil. There's four different types of soil. Only the last type of soil are actually true Christians because that's where it it hits this good soil and produces fruit. Then he explains it. Verse 13, let's drop down. And he said to them, do you not understand this parable? How then will you understand all the parables? The sower sows the word. That's the gospel, the proclamation of the good news. Romans 3, what we just talked about. And these are the ones along the path where the word is sown. When they hear, Satan immediately comes and takes away the word that is sown in them. That person is not a Christian. Verse 16, and these are the ones sown on rocky ground, the ones who, when they hear the word, immediately receive it with joy. They look look a little bit like a Christian. They come to church. Their life may be in shambles. They got caught doing something they shouldn't do. And now, because, you know, they live in this culture, they come, they know they need to get their life straight, and they come and they hear it. But verse 17 says, and they have no root in themselves. But endure it for a while. Then when tribulation or persecution arises on the account of the word, immediately they fall away. That person's not a Christian. But in church culture, because we want numbers and, and, and preachers have egos, if that guy responds at youth camp by raising his hand and he fills out a card, we slap a Christian label on him, give him a false sense of assurance. And so a couple months, when he falls away and doesn't hear the gospel anymore, For the rest of his life, he leads a life of sin and rebellion against God, all the while thinking he's not a Christian, or thinking he is a Christian, when he's not. That may be you. That may may be you today. And it's God's kindness that you're hearing these words today. Come back. Come back. Verse 18, and others are the ones sown among thorns. They are those who hear the word. But the cares of the world and the deceitfulness of riches and the desires for other things enter in and choke the word and it proves again unfruitful. Same situation, basically different circumstances. Ultimately not a Christian. But verse 20 says, but those that were sown on the good soil are the ones who hear the word and accept it and bear fruit. 30-fold and 60-fold and 100-fold. So the question is, how do we know that we have truly received Christ and are saved? The biblical answer is not raising your hand at a youth retreat 
responding to an altar call after an emotional message, filling out a card, attending church, or even looking like and acting like a Christian. But you are a Christian because you have received this news by faith. You've embraced it. And now listen, I want to be very careful here. Now to some degree, to some degree, to some degree, you bear some spiritual fruit. Now there's different levels. There's different degrees of sanctification. There's different degrees of holiness for the children of God. Jesus says some it's 30-fold, some it's 60, some it's 100. But you cannot say you're a Christian and there be no change in your life. And so the way we offer the gospel for salvation here is we say repent and believe. And if it's helpful for you to pray and receive, and pray and come down and pray with somebody to ask Christ to forgive you and come into your life, we'll do that. But, but at that point, listen, we believe in faith and trust that, hey, Jesus is saving you at that moment. But for us to just slap on you a Christian tag and then never press on you to live out this faith is spiritually malpractice at its best. At its best. Because later on in Colossians chapter 1, Paul writes and he says that if you're a Christian, if you continue in this, And thousands of people in this land of once saved, always saved, eternal security get this tag slapped on them when they're a kid that, oh, I received Christ at a crusade, now I'm a Christian. And they're living like the devil. They are no more a Christian than the man on the moon. You're a Christian because you receive this news and faith, you embrace it, and then you live this rest of your life with this rugged sanctification full of toil and love and pursuit and failure and success and grace and redemption and forgiveness over and over and again. But all along the way, this progressive, rugged sanctification where to some degree your life is bearing fruit. And what is fruit? It is love. It is the embrace, the joy. It is that thing that Paul saw in the Colossians. It is evidence of our salvation. And I don't have, come on, we know what that looks like. All of us do. It's a life. It's a heart. It's a desire that's turned towards Jesus. I heard a preacher say the other day, one of my favorite preachers, he says that Jesus didn't come to fulfill your desires that you had before you were saved. There it is. Piper said, Jesus Christ did not come into the world to assist you in meeting the desires you had already before you were born again. He came to change your desires so that He is the main one. And when that happens, regardless, there is an inevitability. You will bear fruit. To some degree. You say, what about the guy who's lived a horrible life? Listen, fruit doesn't save us. Fruit is just evidence of our salvation. Some of you may be saying, what about the 80-year-old guy who's lived the life of rebellion and on his deathbed? Can he truly receive Jesus in his last dying breath in faith and then die bearing no fruit? Yes. Because at that moment of his conversion and regeneration and faith, there in that moment is 
the most precious of all fruits, love for Jesus. Don't be that guy. Don't be that guy. So here's the question that Paul was hammering home in Romans or Colossians chapter 1. What about you? What about you? Some of you may be thinking right now, Brad, is it really wise to push on a Sunday morning crowd and encourage them to examine the truth or the genuineness of their salvation? Yes. Yes. That is very wise. Paul says in 2 Corinthians chapter 13 and verse 5, he says, test yourselves to see whether you are really in the faith. This isn't to rattle your cage. This is to encourage us to say, Jesus, my life, and I need to ask myself this same question of my life, is not indicative of somehow. That doesn't mean you sin. It it doesn't mean that you don't sin. It means that to some degree, you will live a life that glorifies Jesus. So the question for you is now, have you received him? Have you received him? Have you embraced as the treasure of your life that all-encompassing truth, the gospel, the word of God, the news of what Jesus has done on the cross for us. Have you received it? If not, today's the day. How do you do that? We talked about it. You repent and you believe. You embrace. You say, Jesus, I'm away from you. I'm not right with you. I may have played a religious game. Now, I come to you and I embrace with my mind my will. I choose to embrace you as the all-consuming truth of my life. Now come and create the inevitable process of sanctification in my life. This is what the prophet Isaiah says in the Old Testament. And we end with this. It says in 55 verses 1 and 2, he says, Come, everyone who thirsts, come to the waters. And he who has no money, Come, buy and eat. In other words, he who has no merit on his own, come, buy. But how do you buy when you have no money? You realize that Jesus is the one who bought salvation for you. Come, buy and eat. Come, buy wine and milk without money and without price. Why do you spend your money for that which is not bread and your labor for that which does not satisfy? Listen diligently to me and eat what is good and delight yourselves in rich food. And we know that that rich food is not your best life now. It's not 80 years of prosperity here on this earth. It is Jesus, the bread of life that satisfies, that lays up for us a hope in heaven and who guarantees that his people will come to him 
and will to some degree on this earth bear fruit that glorifies him. Is that you? It's not come. Come and believe and embrace the truth of the gospel. Lord, now as we spend a moment or two to respond, I pray for patience. I pray against the spirit of restlessness and anxiousness that sometimes hits us as if lunch is more important than eternity. God, uh, I know that I lived a large part of my life thinking I was a Christian when I wasn't. And I'm very thankful for the day that you made this truth real to me. And in imperfection, the faith that you gave me, I chose to embrace Jesus as the pearl of great price, the treasure hidden in the field. And God, since that time, my life has gone through many different rugged struggles. Uh, I think if you were to count the fruit that my life has spoken of, it would be certainly wouldn't be 30, 60, or 100. It might be just a couple. But I'm very thankful of some measure of fruit and evidence that allows me to say along with Paul in Romans chapter 8, verse 16, that the Spirit bears witness with my spirit that I am a child of God. Because I don't desire the things that I used to desire. Certainly I still struggle with that old man, but Jesus, you have become the all-precious jewel. God, would you do that for somebody in this room today who has not embraced you and understood the grace of God and truth in that way? Would you do that right now? And God, I'm not appealing to human will and decision. I'm appealing to your sovereign Grace. This first Peter chapter one verse twenty three says that we are born again by the living and abiding word of God. Would you cause this would you cause this gospel, would you cause this news, would you cause this oxygen, would you cause this information, this this proclamation of what Jesus did on the cross, as Paul says in Romans one sixteen, it is the power of God for salvation. So God would you cause it to hit a dead human heart in me. You cause that heart to come alive. Whether in this room or listening later through podcasts or on the internet, God, would you resurrect dead hearts that are listening to this now. And God, for those of us that have received that, would you cause this this hard word would you come into you and would you cause us to examine our lives to test our sanctification and salvation to see whether we are in the faith God if we find ourselves drifting from you would you let this be your gracious lifeline to pull us back to you and the grace of God that has appeared to all men in Titus 2, 11 and 12 that has brought salvation also brings with us sanctifying power to say no. So if there's a man in here who's a Christian and he's battling with lust
and pornography and destructive habits, God, would you, would you pull them back and would you put his sanctification back on track? Would you bear fruit in life? The fruit that John the Baptist says is in keeping with our repentance. God, if there's a young lady in here whose heart is a million miles from you, but right now the Spirit is bearing witness in her that she is a child of God. And this is your gracious, sanctifying lifeline to pull her back to you so that she will not trust in some punk kid's opinion of her body or some, some broken culture's opinion of what womanhood is. But God, she would see that you are gracious and you are good and you are pulling her back and putting her back on that sanctifying path. A fruit-bearing joy for you. God, would you do that through this word as she examines her life? God, a marriage that is in shambles. Jesus, how God stays and it restores and it makes all things new. So God, would you, would you break into the hard heart of a selfish husband and a, and a nagging wife? And God, would you break into that and would you rescue that marriage? And would you do what only the gospel can do? Would you save and heal and sanctify and restore and bear fruit for your glory? God, I know there are a thousand different applications in this room, so give us the tenacity now to press in to you. In Jesus' name, amen.